Thank you for joining me on episode 91 of the Unique on a Purpose podcast, helping you find victory in how God has uniquely created you. I am your host, Rachel Gentleman, just a regular gal trying to help people know they are called to be victors in Christ Jesus. It is our second episode of our Generation series, and today I talk with history teacher, author, and millennial Callie Logan on her take of what is happening with the millennial generation in the STEM of the deconstruction movement. Welcome back to the Unique on Purpose podcast. Rachel Gentleman with you traveling down to Virginia to visit Callie Logan. Callie, you were just on the 700 Club. You've written a couple books. You are a senior writer for Crosswalk.com. You're also a 10th grade history teacher, and you've got a lot going on in your life. Yeah, yeah, I do. And, and have you started school yet? Yes, we just started last week. So I also started working on a new book. So I think everyone in my life thinks I'm a little zany, but you know what? Fueled by Jesus and Jesus and coffee. You know what? You got to do what you got to do. The books are called Hang In There, Girl, and Dear Future Husband, which we can talk about here later in the show, and I'll make sure that those those books are in the show notes. But really today... We're talk. We're going with the angle of millennials and talking about this whole deconstruction movement. And obviously, you're, you're 31 years old. You're a millennial. I'm a millennial. I'm barely a millennial. I'm an older millennial. Um, but tell me first, before we really get into the deconstruction movement, what is a millennial and really what makes them different from uh, other generations? Yeah, I believe the year span is 1980 until 1995 mm-hmm. for kind of generation and how they do that. And I I noticed with generations, sometimes they'll do years and sometimes they do it by like population growth. Mm. Um, that was definitely really clear with the boomers because you had that baby boom. Yes. Um, and so that was more of a population and then it declined. Um, but with our generation, it seems they, they cap it in the years. And one of the biggest aspects of millennials is basically the age in which we grew up. We were really the last generation to grow up without the overabundance of social media, all the technology, all of that was coming up as we were in our later teen years, as we were getting into our 20s and college Mm -hmm. years and things like that. Um, And really, we were coming of age as the millennium, you know, turned over into the 2000s. What do you think makes millennials as far as personality wise different from maybe the boomers or the gen xers in your opinion i think in my opinion i think most of our formative years were really struck by a lot of really jarring hard realities that you know the two generations before us didn't really experience quite as much i would say in the generation growing up uh in the 1910s to 1920s they really did with world war one with seeing different things like World War One happen, um, the Spanish flu, stuff like that. But for us, 9-11, I, I think, you know, has really had a great impact and that we were thrust into realizing that we live in a very scary world mm-hmm. and not everyone's our friend. Yeah. And there's, you know, really that concept of life and death was thrown drastically in our face mm-hmm. uh, at a very formative age. And I think going through that and then seeing more tragedy or more calamity happen in the world. I think in some ways it has numbed us out. I think in other ways it has built our anxieties a little higher. And I think in other ways it made us grow up very quickly. 
Yes, I I would agree. And not even just 9-11, but the other event that everybody, especially a millennial, will say, I know where I was when, was the the Columbine shooting. It was really the first school shooting that was in the media. It was all over the place. And uh, it, it... you got home from school and it was right there on the news and it was for, for days and weeks on end. And now we are kind of numb to that because we're like, Oh, mm-hmm. another school shooting. Like it, it's, it's, it's not anything but a thing anymore where before Columbine, it was just this turning point in our generation. And then, like you said, nine 11 really solidified a lot of things. So in, and then there was that recession that came in 2008. And so yeah. there's all of this, and I think there's more pressure too when it comes to millennials. I know that you're you're single, but coming from a parent's point of view, I've noticed a lot of parents that are millennials feel a lot more pressure to raise their kids a certain way than maybe the Gen Xers or the Boomers did in years past. So as we talk about millennials and that generation, I did not grow up in the church. Now, did you grow up? In the church, I forgot to ask you your testimony. I wanted to hear about your testimony a little bit, but did you grow up in the church? Yeah, you know, we went to church when I was little, and then we had kind of a few years where we didn't quite attend every Sunday. And then when I was in middle high school, my parents really did make a point to have me go to youth group. And so that became a lot of, um, I was extremely introverted and very bullied at school. So youth group definitely became a place where since it was smaller and on a smaller scale, I really tried to kind of ingrain myself. And so I definitely got a a heavy dosing of that early 2000s youth group culture for sure. Mm, Okay. Now I probably, I became a Christian in 1999. So it was my junior year of high school and I had gone to youth group, not just in those last two years of high school, but then I was involved in youth group quite a bit just because I became a youth leader in college and all of that. But a lot of the deconstruction movement that you are seeing today seems to stem from back then, the late 90s, the early 2000s. But that has been a new word in the past few years. Probably my, for me personally, the first time I heard it was when Joshua Harris, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye, announced on Twitter that he was just walking away from the faith. And if nobody has heard of Joshua Harris's I Kiss Dating Goodbye, it was a book that he wrote. I want to say he was about 18 years old and it sold millions. And it was just this different way to approach dating. And have did you hear about deconstruction before he decided to deconstruct himself? And you had heard that term before? I did. I had heard about it about two years prior. Oh, really? So okay. I think it was, yeah, I think it was around 2020 that he came out with the tweet and with his announcement with where he was, mm-hmm. faith-wise. But I had heard it a couple of years prior, and it was actually more, I, I have not, quite understood the concept quite as much, but I had some people that I had gone to high school with um, that were very vocal on Facebook Mm. and they were sharing that they were deconstructing their faith and their kind of avenue of that. And so I, at first I was like, okay, maybe this is one of those subtle trends. Um, And then when Joshua Harris came forward, I was like, Oh, this is, this is a little bit more of a wave than what I thought it was. Right. Did you read that book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye? I did. You did? Yeah, actually, yeah, that was actually one of the formative books uh, for me just growing up in the years when, you know, I was in that early dating year time. Um, it actually did greatly change my perspective, and I was 
I, I actually quite literally, I'm a very emotional person, you know, within healthy emotions, but I actually cried when I found out that he was walking away from faith because that book had actually blessed my faith a lot. Mm. And the idea of really inviting God to write my love story instead of me trying to write my love story. Yeah. Um, so to hear that was almost like hearing, I don't want to say he was a hero of mine, but a, a very respected brother Mm-hmm. You know, hearing that and him walk away was so disheartening to me. Uh, and I remember really feeling a, a great grief. And I just actually felt a pull like, man, I really want to pray for him that he does come back uh, into the fold because what a tragedy. But what a healthy perspective that you have. I think you're one of the first people I've heard that said that because I read the book, too, and I didn't get out of it. I feel what everybody else got out of it. I looked at it as a very healthy book. I mean, there were some things that maybe I took away from it that I shouldn't have. Like I, when my husband and I started dating, I made sure to let everybody know we weren't dating, we weren't courting. And I'm like, well, really, essentially it's the same thing. Like we're the, the purpose is marriage in the future, not just dating just to date. And I wish that I would have kind of solidified that more, but I guess I didn't understand why everybody was so upset with the book. Did you see that with different people, why they were upset with the book? Yeah, it was definitely, you either loved it or you hated it. There wasn't, I, you were one of the first people that I found was a little bit more kind of in that mid zone um, Mm -hmm. because I noticed some people really condemned it and they were like acting like it was kind of cultish or something um, or they took it as, you know, an additional gospel Uh, that was omitted from the Bible or something. And for me, I think I looked at it and I I gleaned from it what I felt was for me and I left what wasn't, you know, like you said, with the courting idea and concept, I've always been one where you date with intention, but not obligation. Mm -hmm. And courtship, there is kind of that more obligation of this will end in marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always been more, I'm going to let God write my love story. And that might include something that is not endgame, that might include a pit stop, and being open that God might have somebody in your life that you are dating uh, for a reason and for you to collect to grow from, but they're not, you know, your, your actual spouse, too. So I think it's, it's gleaning some of the good and then leaving things that just aren't for you. Now, I have heard quite a few people say that they have deconstructed from their faith, and a lot of that stemmed from the book again, surprises me only because I did not get out of that book what other people got out of. Why do you think people are, in a sense, deconstructing from that book? Why is it stemming from that? And not all of it, because I don't want to throw Joshua Harris under the bus. Again, loved the book myself. But anyway, I I just want you to speak to that. Yeah, I I hadn't really heard many people saying that that was the book that kind of was a catalyst from their deconstruction. But I think definitely I have some friends who have, you know, self-proclaimed that they are in a season of deconstruction. But uh, I think a lot of it comes from a late rebellion from their parents, Mm. maybe something that typically most people would have done as a teenager in rebellion to the way their parents were living. Yeah. Uh, And they're finding themselves that kind of a... Uh, a lack, a a later, you know, a a late-seated rebellion, which I think is kind of true of a lot of millennials in that because so many aspects of maturity were heightened and grown through Columbine, through 9-11, through things like that, that there are other areas that were stunted in growth. Mm 
Mm. Um, and so I've seen kind of a, a late rebellion from that. And then I think also just it doesn't fit the narrative that they desire to have over their life. Um, so they use the term deconstruction as to kind of omit um, or take away or rip down what they don't want. I Have you ever read or listened to Alicia Chillard's at all? I have not. Okay, so she's an apologetist. She used to be in the Christian music scene. She was a part of Zoe Girl, and now she does these podcasts and writes these books, and she's really big on the deconstruction movement. And she said Ooh. as long as she's been studying it, she notices that the number one or the common theme among everyone that has deconstructed is that desire for sexual freedom. Is that something that you're seeing? I I think that's a heavy aspect of it. Um, I think other aspects of it are a lot of things that people, religion specifically, um, or traditionalism that they are wanting to break from. And those are things that, you know, I, I think that you see in the deconstruction, but you don't see much in the way of reconstruction, right? Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's anything wrong with looking at, well, this has always been said in my church. Is that factual? Is that true? Is that, you know, correct towards the Word of God? Um, but I don't see that seeking after. Mm-hmm. I see kind of more, you know, they carry down the building, but they don't build anything new. Yes. Uh, and they don't really seek to either. And that's where I have grown bad for my friends or to the people around me. Cause I'm like, you know, the thing that you're actually disgruntled about isn't even in the Bible. That's more of a, a cultural thing, you know, whether it be to your, you know, where you live in the country or your specific church or what have you. Mm-hmm. You said something interesting that it seems as though deconstruction is a, in a sense, a late rebellion. And what I'm seeing is in the deconstruction movement It's happening mostly with millennials, whether it's older millennials, younger millennials. I don't see it. So I've never seen anyone that was a boomer or an Xer say they're deconstructing their faith. And I know that they didn't go through Columbine or 9-11 with their coming of year uh, coming of age years. But they did go through the Cold War and Vietnam and that type of thing. Why do you think deconstruction is is happening to millennials I don't even see it with Gen Z. Maybe they are in Gen Z. I don't know, but I'm not seeing it. I think there are different waves of things that come at different generations. And I, th- I think parts of it, you know, we, you know, Paul says that, you know, we're, there's a lot more than just flesh and blood at play. Um, and so I do think there are different things that come at different generations, particularly. But I think, you know, in a lot of ways, deconstruction isn't necessarily anything super new. I remember reading about Thomas Jefferson actually would take this tiny little razor he had, and if he didn't like something in the Bible, he'd literally cut it out. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I see that as a variant of deconstruction in a way. It's refashioning and reforming to a narrative that made him feel more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And that was 250 years ago, you yeah. know. So I think I think it, it comes in different ways. I think I think it also is the communication style. I think boomers and Gen Xers have a different way of portraying out things that they might disagree with or how they might feel. And I think it's also, you know, it, 
seems to be more accepted amongst the millennials. So it kind of is fueled to the fire because you have some of that peer pressure or you have that peer encouragement as well. Mm -hmm. I also think, too, with the rise of social media, you're seeing so much more of it because it's being presented to you in a different way than maybe it wouldn't have if we didn't have technology. But you said something that you're completely right. Deed construction is nothing new. People have been falling away from the Lord or leaving the Christian faith for years. It's nothing new. I think we just now have a term for it. Mm-hmm. We now call yeah, it something. I think so too. so yep. let's move on. We alluded to it a little bit with Joshua Harris and I kiss dating goodbye. But I want to talk about the purity movement because I know that for what I've seen on social media, that is one of the reasons why some of millennials have said that they have deconstructed their faith is the purity, quote unquote, movement. Can you explain what the purity movement was? Yeah, it was really a movement. I remember as a teenager, there were these rings and kind of the idea of purity rings and true love waits and, and waiting to engage in sexual things until marriage. Mm-hmm. And I think in its root, it has a very, it actually does have pure motive, right? right? To, yes. uh, to, to help encourage young people and not falling in the way of sexual temptation in the way that it spares them from a lot of grief and a lot of turmoil and a lot of consequence later on. But I think what happened was kind of like what we see in the Scarlet Letter, you know, where there was that, like, condemnation that was going on and the making you feel guilty or different things. And so I think a lot of the movement where people have felt that it's toxic is kind of that overflow of, like, that Scarlet Letter feeling of condemnation rather than personal conviction that this is what I feel I'm being led towards or I feel that, you know, I had been engaging in this, but I don't think that was healthy for me. And I want to turn away from that. And instead, I want to save things that are sacred for marriage. You know, there's a huge difference between condemnation and conviction in that way. Mm -hmm. So how do we solve the problem then in? Well, no. okay. let me let me back up. I'll ask that question in a minute. One, I thank you for saying that that they had pure motives, because I 100% agree. I became a Christian in 1999. I was not raised in a Christian home, so I kind of came into the church near the end of the purity movement. I saw the rings. We talked a lot about sex, and we talked a lot about waiting until marriage. And But I didn't get out of the purity movement what seemed to be those that were raised in the church got out of it. And I remember getting married And I looked at my virginity and I said, peace out. Like I was ready, whatever. And a lot of my friends, I found out years later that on their wedding night, they felt so dirty because they were not Mm. quote unquote pure anymore. And I just, I went, where did you get that? And And for them, it all stems back to that purity movement of, that constant word of stay pure, stay pure, stay pure. And then suddenly you're married and you're not pure anymore. And I'm going, yes, you are. (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. Why does being Mm -hmm. a virgin mean that you're pure? But they took that as if I'm, if, if I'm a virgin, I can become like you any day, but when I'm not a virgin, I can't become one anymore. Therefore I'm not pure. Is that kind of what you're seeing among people or among millennials? That's interesting, because for me, growing up, it was one where, you know, I had heard about it, and I 
I was intrigued by it and a little bit, you know, I'm also very shy <laughs> with things too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually heard a pastor say once, and this is actually what shifted my entire perspective on things, was how King David never lost his purity until he committed adultery with Ooh, Bathsheba. That's good. And yeah, and he was married. You mm-hmm. know, he had, you know, I think at that point he had two wives and then he. Um, or maybe three, but he never lost the purity with that because he was pure of heart and mind with God. And so there's that big difference between purity and then clinical with, you know, yes or no, you're a virgin or not. And so looking at that, my that sermon changed my perspective in the way of, so I don't lose my purity when I get married. I can continue to, to keep that, you know, and keeping in mind in alignment with God um, and inviting him into marriage, inviting him into, you know, the bedroom behind closed doors and things. So for me personally, that's what kind of shifted me. But I think amongst friends, I do think there was, you know, though some people had pure motives, I think other people, as with anything at all, be them Christian or not, they will easily kind of shift into this condemnation mindset. Mm-hmm. And making people feel guilty and bad. And so I do think some of the purity culture and purity movement had an influx of that because it was placed in human hands and humans are prone towards sin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they felt, I don't think convicted, I think they felt, oh, well, I got to ram this down, you know, these young people's throats so that they, you know, so they do it right kind of thing. And it, it was too much of a condemning hand and, um, a judgmental hand than a hand and hey, I want to invite you into taking a look at this in a deeper heart sense and not just at surface level. Did you have the purity ring and all of the things? I did, yeah. You did? <laughs> I still have. Yeah, I don't I don't still wear it because when we moved, I lost it. Um, not, well, and another, you're like wanting like, to get married, little, little so why would you wear it? <laughs> like, Right, exactly. Um, like the literal object was lost, not the purity. Um, yes, but, yes, but, yeah, let's be clear. Uh, <laughs> be very clear on that, right? <laughs> but in one of my moves, I it was misplaced because I had a jewelry box fall and break open, and I lost a bunch mm. of my things. Um, but but I still have that sentiment in my heart, and I don't I don't actually look at that when people bring that up. I don't look at that for me personally in conviction um, as a bad thing. I look at that as you know, I want to keep my mind pure, mm-hmm. um, not just for a human man, but for God. Right. And there's that conviction that comes up. And also looking at that renewal that, you know, David, though he broke from purity, you know, he still is known as the man after God's own heart. And he did repent and God made him pure and clean again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that was by God's spirit. So looking at that, that that can be renewed as yeah. well. And I think what saddens me about watching people my own age and younger deconstruct and it's stemming from this purity movement or I kiss dating goodbye, they are so resentful from it. And I guess for me personally, I don't understand why we can't look at that and say, okay, they had a pure heart in it. It made me feel guilty and shame, but I don't have to feel guilt and shame because God knows my heart. And I guess I don't understand the falling away from the Lord and having to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. You see what I'm saying? Totally. But I think a lot of that spurs to, and this is not to target anybody or mm-hmm. to 
by any means judge anybody, but I do think it comes into with their perspective and what they saw going on or action in church. Was there a relationship at the bottom? You know, did they have that intimate relationship with God or was it more in the facet of religion of I do this on repeat Mm. and I've seen my parents do this. So I participate because of that because God doesn't have grandchildren, Mm -hmm. you know? So I think looking at that, is it, was that my parents' religion? And I, I noticed that word is thrown around far more than I feel my relationship with God moving in a different way, because there are, are certainly things within my own faith and relationship with God that I have seen those in my family do, I've seen friends do, um, that for a long time I accepted as part of Christianity that I had myself had to open the box and take out what was in there and see this is actually of God and this is actually of culture mm-hmm. and see the difference between the two. But that all came down to the bottom foundation of relationship. Mm-hmm. So when we are looking at this up and coming generation, Gen Z, the alpha generation, how do you think we solve the problem with one helping them not want to deconstruct? I mean, obviously they're going to make their own choices and do whatever they want, but we can still do the best we can to teach them. How do we help them with this deconstruction movement? But also, how do we help them? How do we teach them about purity without going down the path of purity movement? I guess we get rid of that word pure, maybe. But how do we solve that problem? I think it's a twofold thing. I think it comes in with authenticity and vulnerability Mm. and being very real about your relationship with God. I have such a blessing in that I've taught for several years now, but I've also gotten to work with youth. And so I started working with a lot of these young women when they were in the eighth grade. And now most of them are um, either almost done with college or in the midst of college. And, you know, I wanted to be really mindful not to, not to overshare and make them feel uncomfortable, but not to shy away from different truths, you know, and being very authentic and genuine um, and, and sharing those things and then hearing their hearts, hearing their questions and creating an atmosphere where they felt safe. Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things is it's okay to have a question, um, but you have to know who you can talk to and who you can trust that with. And knowing that at that age, they are so young. They are so impressionable. They hear things on TV. They hear things at school. They hear things on the bus. They hear things from their parents. But, but knowing who they can have those conversations with and who's going to encourage them towards living in such a way that, you know, we're doing our best and we're seeking after God, but we're also well aware that we're human and mm-hmm. we're going to mess up and we, why we need a Savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, that God's not expecting perfection from us, but he is expecting relationship yeah. um, and and maybe more less expecting, more desiring. And so kind of encouraging them, hey, you're going to mess up because you're human and I've messed up and here are times I've messed up uh, and I've fallen short. I fall short all the time, but the thing of grace. And so I think just the introduction of the word grace more than anything um, and encouragement to do the best that you can moving forward. And you really alluded to this about relationship. I think as parents, when we're trying to raise our kids in a hyper-sexualized culture, when the deconstruction movement is all over the place, you're not going to get away from it, whether it's social media or elsewhere. Relationship is the key. 
Uh, I remember one time I heard a child psychologist say that your relationship with your child is actually more important than teaching them about a relationship with Jesus. And that sounds like an oxymoron, but really what it is, is you being available to answer those questions and not shoving the religion down their throat, not shoving the make sure you have a relationship with Jesus down their throat. But when they do have questions, they feel comfortable talking to you asking you those questions. Uh, The other day, it was a Saturday, my two boys were gone, and it was just my 16-year-old daughter and I at home, and I was so excited to be able to go sit in the hammock and read a book. But all of a sudden, she started talking to me, and it was just about everyday stuff, and we sat and talked for two hours, and as much as I really wanted to go (laughs) and go read a book, I had to remember that even that little conversation, maybe it had nothing to do about deconstruction, or we didn't didn't talk about quote-unquote purity, But through that conversation, I knew that one day she would be comfortable talking to me or asking me questions about sex or purity or whatever it is, all because I took the time to have a conversation with her. And I think that that is important, too. So like you said, making sure that you're available for them. Yeah. And I, you know, I've seen I have some friends who have little ones, little, little, little ones. And the beauty of them just inviting them to the table with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my one friend in particular, her son is just, he's my godson, but he's so precious and that he will lead us in prayer. And he's two yeah, um, for meals and him seeing the very realization that Jesus is not just part of mealtime, but he's part of their home mm-hmm. and him coming to know Jesus um, personally and then relationally and everything, just even you know, I think of it almost in the John the Baptist kind of way, where John the Baptist, in the womb, knew Jesus, right? right. And le- left with joy, and she has really raised her son to be a, a child like that and introducing him to Jesus at such a young age. And I love seeing that in action and how that he really does know the Lord. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's, you know, it's an imaginary friend. Like, I can tell, no, he really does know. And he'll, you know... Even before he can form words, you know, improper pronunciation, you know, he's he's referencing God, and I see that, and I I love that too. Just that introduction and inviting to the table, I like, like I have this relationship with God, and I want you to know Him too. No, and I like that because it's inviting him to participate in a relationship, with God, not telling him he has to have a relationship with God or telling him what to do. It's I'm inviting you in. We're going to do this together, and I think I think that is absolutely beautiful. But before we wrap up, I want to talk about, speaking of purity movement, your Dear Future <laughs> Husband book. It just released. It's available on Amazon, and I will make sure I stick that in the show notes. But tell me where that started. Why write a book, Dear Future yeah. Husband? And, of course, everybody's going to start yeah. singing the, the Megan Trailer song right away when they when they hear the title. But. Oh, golly. You know, in the whole course of this, I never even thought about that. Oh, seriously? <laughs> uh, yeah. That's your theme song now, ever... when you advertise your book. Uh, uh, we'll see. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, there's, a, there's a couple lyrics in there, I don't know. Um, so, so, it was kind of a cool concept. So, when I was 18, I started writing letters to my future husband. I've always been uh, very much a wallflower. I was very shy growing up, and I remember being a teenager, and I went to some sleepover, and I just everybody was talking about the guys that they liked and stuff, but there was just something aching in me that I I didn't really want to 
waste my time on guys that, you know, weren't going to, like, be it. Right. And everybody looked at me like I had three heads. But I remember life was changing so much, and I just felt kind of the sadness because, in a way, I felt like there was a part of me that somehow already knew him. Even mm-hmm. if I didn't know his name or what he looked like or where he lived, there was some part of me that felt this connection to him. And so I started, I am very much, I process through my writing. And so I started writing letters to him almost as if I was IMing him, you know, which dates me a little bit in timing there, but almost like I was sending him an email or something. And so I just wrote these little letters and it started as a journal. And then I tore out the page of the journal and some in envelopes and it kind of went from there. And in my first book, uh, Hang In There Girl, I put a very, I think it was three paragraphs about that practice because I shared it with some young kids, you know, and girls growing up in students. And I was like, oh, they, you know, kind of latch on to that. Well, uh, fast forward, uh, I was actually, my morning time is a very holy time for me. And I have coffee with the Lord. I say I have coffee with Christ. And uh, some mornings I'm asking for things, and other mornings I just sit and I listen. And the Lord asked me a very distinct, interesting question out of left field of what would you think of writing a book off your letters? And I was so stunned by the question because I was not expecting him to ask me that, that I didn't really have an answer. Mm -hmm. And literally 24 hours later, I received an email from my publisher and they said, hey, we were going through the manuscript of Hanging There Girl. And there's this like really small section that you have about this thing you do with these writing these letters. Could you like write a book about that for Mm -hmm. your sequel book? And I was like, (laughs) if I needed more confirmation than ever that God wanted me to do something. Yeah. And so that was kind of the genesis of it. And so instead of photocopying my letters or, you know, ripping them open and and writing exactly what I had written um, to him, I really surveyed and saw, I went through my old diaries and went through my old journals of who I was at different stages in life. And I realized some of the things that other women had either experienced or they were questioning or they were aspiring to in their season of singleness. They compiled all of that together to make this book. So it's it's not a memoir. It's actually a book to help women feel less alone in their weight and yeah. encourage them and what God is doing in them in the meantime because they aren't somehow inherently worthy when they become an MRS. You know, they are worthy before and they have a purpose set by God and a timeline set by God that is very specifically designed. So it's a, it's a book about encouraging, you know, the first and greatest love that should never change, no matter what humans in your life, and that is in, with God in relationship. And then it's a book just encouraging you in the meantime, you know, mm-hmm. what kind of wife do you want to be? What are some, maybe a few things that you should be working on in the meantime? And um, just encouragement and prayer, too, as you're waiting. Well, I'll have to have you back on some time to talk about that, um, just because... I got married at 22. I don't know how to help people, honestly, that are single, especially those that are in, like, I have a lot lot of friends in their 30s, and they're still waiting, and I don't know what to say or how to say, and they're sick of all the cliches, so yeah, I'll have to have you back on to talk about that. I would love it. But going back to deconstruction, is there anything else that you would like to share before we end? I think that the last thing I would share is to encourage those that if you have found yourself in a place where you are in deconstruction or there's a facet of your faith that you want to deconstruct, don't stop Mm -hmm. at just tearing down the building. Mm -hmm. Um, Seek after truth. Seek after answers. And go to the source. Go to God himself and say, Lord, I don't, this was taught in my church or this was done in my church, but those are humans. And so I don't want to 
place upon you the things humans have done. So what do you say of this on this topic specifically? And reconstruct on the rock, not the sand. Mm. You know, reconstruct with him. And I think that would be my biggest encouragement because I think for each and every one of us, there's going to be some point where something happens that, that rocks the boat, you know, or makes you in a place where you are questioning your faith. As Charles Stanley said, you might go through an acid testing where it's more than just a regular testing. It's a testing that is burning with such a potency that it is acidic, you know, but don't just give up and walk away. Mm-hmm. Don't just, you know, wash the dust off your sandals and walk away. Go to the source and say, God, what do you say? Because everyone else is saying all this stuff but I want to hear what you have to say on this topic and I want to know truth. So help me through revelation, help me understand in a way that is so precise to the language of my heart because you wrote the language of my heart. So you speak it fluently. Um, and so I'd say, yeah, reconstruct. Don't just deconstruct. <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> All right, Kelly, thank you so much uh, for being here today and uh, sharing what you're seeing and sharing your heart. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. God bless. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Unique on Purpose. Remember, no matter what generation you were born in, you were created unique and unique on purpose. Make sure you check out Kelly's books, Dear Future Husband, and Hang in There, Girl, in the show notes. Unique on Purpose is available on iTunes as well as Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to share, download, and subscribe. And remember, you were created unique on purpose. You are loved. And because of Christ, you have been made worthy. I'll see you next time.